You are listening to The Secrets of Middle-Earth on sqpn.com. The battle for Middle-Earth is about to begin. Where do you travel to find Middle-Earth? How can you fight the shadows of Angmar? created the dwarves. I thought I'd die fighting side by side with an elf. Why are elves immortal? You will linger on in darkness and in doubt. It's nightfall in winter that comes without a star. What is the ultimate evil of Sauron? Join me on a quest for answers through the books, the movies, and the games that tell us the legendary adventures of hobbits, dwarves, men, and elves in Tolkien's Middle-earth. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Secrets of Middle-earth. And I am here standing at the foot of the old forest, a very dangerous place full of spiders, wolves, bears, and... Perhaps even bigger dangers lurking here. But I'm not going to stay here. I'm actually traveling westwards towards the Shire. Because I am supposed to have a meeting with uh, our good friends Inge, Dave and Laura. And a special guest on this episode of The Secrets of Middle-Earth. Corey Olson, also known as the Tolkien Professor. And he's going to tell us much more about the Shire, about the history of Middle-earth. But I'm not there yet. I first have to travel to safer places. And the Old Forest is a very dangerous place for travelers and also for hobbits. And so, uh, fortunately for most of the hobbits, uh, the Old Forest is, or the dangers from the Old Forest are uh, kept away by the Brandywine River. That's kind of a natural protection against uh, the animals and uh, perhaps even um, orcs and other creatures under the influence of Sauron. The bridge, the Brandywine Bridge is uh, the only connection between Breland and the Shire, and it's pretty easy to defend if that's necessary. However, there is a settlement on my left here. I'm, I'm walking towards the Brandywine Bridge, and I can see uh, that big imposing stone bridge in the distance. But even before I can cross the Brandywine River, uh, there is this Hobbit settlement here on my left. Um, and it's called Buckland. It's, it's actually a pretty big area. Uh, it's almost like a, a city in itself, or a city is perhaps uh, uh, too big of a word, because um, it's still a very rural area here. Most of the hobbits live from the farmland. But what makes Buckland so special is that it is entirely surrounded by this huge hedge, and I am standing right in front of it. There's only one hole here in the hedge. It's called... Um, the Buckland Gate and uh, Sheriff Hob Hayward is uh, here on my left these hobbits are so tiny could I take a moment of your time 
So this is uh, the sheriff uh, inviting me to uh, visit Buckland, which I will do very briefly because I don't have much time. Uh, there are some some farm animals walking around here, some sheep and the occasional pig and lots and lots of hobbits. This is a very nice area. Uh, there's a hill in the distance um, that is uh, uh, that 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 uh, is kind of the, the the home of a lot of hobbits. There's, I can see multiple hobbit holes uh, inside on on the inside of the of the hill, and there's a also a small tower on top of it. And uh, some farms here on the left as well. You can hear the chicken. And everything is very peaceful, especially if you if you uh, realize that that just across the hedge here on the left, and I can I can tell that the whole the hedge is several hobbits tall, and it extends all the way to the south. Uh, so it forms this big separation between the old forest uh, and uh, and Buckland. And so, despite the dangers on the other side of the hedge, this is a relatively safe place for these hobbits to uh, to live. I'm now walking through Crick Hollow, and several tents are built here. Uh, it looks like a marketplace uh, where these hobbits can sell their wares. Here is a, a small stand, and um, some fresh fruit is sold is on sale here. And um, on my left, I'm walking towards uh, uh, a river here. This is the river, the the Brandywine River. And uh, there's a hobbit fishing here. So not only do they live from the, 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 the fruits of the farmland, but they also can catch fish here. And this particular hobbit has already caught quite a few big fish here hanging to dry in the sun. But I'm not going to stay here in uh, Buckland because my destiny, my destination is across the bridge uh, westwards. I'm actually supposed to meet my friends in the middle of the Shire near the uh, Three Farthing Monument which is exactly at the crossroads of three big areas in the Shire and uh, I'll be uh, meeting my friends in Bywater, which is a small village not far from Hobbiton. It's just to the southeast of, uh, of Hobbiton. And actually, I don't really want to tell the other hobbits there that I've been in Buckland, because for them, Buckland, despite the fact that it, it looks very much like the Shire, it's still across the river so there's this psychological separation between the Shire and and this part of uh, Hobbit land and, and and so to the Hobbits living in the Shire the people here the boundaries of Buckland are, are a bit strange are a bit weird and so I won't tell I won't tell my uh, my guests uh, my hosts of today that I've been visiting Buckland so here we're coming up to the beautiful Brandywine Bridge. And uh, if I look to the north, I can see the brown water of the Brandywine River extending all the way to the region of uh, Evendim, because I think that's where the river originates. And uh, it's an interesting uh, factoid 
that the brown water actually has to do with the current name of this river, the the Brandywine. Um, here's some information. The the Brandywine is is the fourth longest river in Middle Earth. Uh, there are three other big rivers that we know of: the Anduin, the Seldwin, and the Grey Flood. Um, so this particular river uh, originates in Lake Evendim. We visited uh, that area in uh, one of our earlier episodes of The Secrets of Middle-Earth. And um, the river flows through the easternmost reaches of the Shire and, and also forms its eastern border, except, of course, for Buckland, which is kind of this in-between land between, between the Shire and the Old Forest. Uh, so the only crossing, as I already explained, uh, in the Shire is the Brandywine Bridge. And then, of course, you've, you've got some, some other uh, places uh, more to the south where you can also cross the river, even with a little boat. Um, and, and if you've... Uh, uh, if you remember Frodo and his fellow hobbits on the run for that uh, Black Rider, for, for, for that ring wraith, uh, that happened a, a bit south from here. Now, this, uh, this river is originally called the Beranduin, uh, which was Sindarin for the Golden Brown River. And, uh, well, that's not a stretch because... It, Indeed, the river looks very muddy in color. It's, uh, it's, it's brown, and I guess that if the sun hits the water, you get these kind of golden uh, glistening stars on it, which perhaps, I don't know, it's, it, that's why it's golden brown. The elves are, are very poetic. Even if you have a muddy river, they will still call it a golden brown river, the Beranduin. Now, the hobbits of the Shire being perhaps a little bit less poetic, gave it the punning name Brandanin, which means border water in the original Hobbitish Western language. This was later uh, changed in Braldahim, and uh, Braldahim means heady ale. And with that name, the hobbits compared the water to beer <laughs> and uh, to, to ale, to dark brown ale. And then uh, that became uh, the current name in English, Brandywine. So Brandywine, it just means golden brown river. Uh, but in, in, for hobbits, it also immediately makes them think of beer. <laughs> Why am I not surprised? <laughs> So walking across the bridge, I am uh, coming up onto the first small village here, which is called Stock. And if I'm not mistaken, there is a famous inn here in Stock, famous for its beer, for its ale. And uh, before we move on westwards, let me enter this uh, very busy square full of hobbits. And a lot of these hobbits are sitting at, at large tables, eating, of course, because it might be time for whatever second breakfast or third dinner. <laughs> you never know with hobbits. There's always a reason to eat. And also on this same square, uh, huge barrels, two particularly big barrels here and uh, lots and lots of uh, uh, beer um, glasses and bottles and whatnot. So 
I'm standing in front of the Golden Perch. And the Golden Perch is that famous inn. I'm just going to take a peek inside and see what the atmosphere is uh, over here. And uh, if there's any... Oh, lots and lots of beer here, too. This place is filled with barrels. And this is uh, Gun Gundrick Grub. And he's the keeper Could of I this Could I take a moment of your tavern. time? Well, no, actually not. I, I have to move on. I don't have time to for a beer. Uh, I have to stay sober because I still have to travel a lot. Now, I don't want to waste too much time, so I'm just going to call my horse. And we're going to travel to the three-farthing monument. And uh, I don't want to be too late to meet my friends. So... Let's move on to the west. Now, as I said, there are three main areas in uh, in the Shire. We've got the North Farthing, the West Farthing, and the South Farthing. And currently... Or actually, the East Farthing as well. <laughs> there are four areas. That oh, makes sense. Uh, let's see. I'm, I'm currently... Uh, actually taking the wrong I've <laughs> taken the wrong way this is a small road that goes to uh, Green Hill Country but that's not where I want to be I actually want to take the big East Road I think that's what it's called I'm just heading back over these hills oh, the hills are littered with the uh, mushrooms probably uh, most of them edible and great to use in all sorts of Hobbit recipes. So I'm now on the East Road, and on, on my right-hand side is uh, uh, part of the, the river that, that flows from the water of the Brandywine River, but this is just called the water. Not a very poetic name. <laughs> just the water. And uh, lots of trees here, and you can hear the birds in this part. So this is the east farthing, or the let's say the southern part of the east farthing. Uh, so up north you have uh, Scary, which is uh, a village in the northern part. Um, and it's in, in the neighborhood of uh, the uh, the hills, the, the, the Scary Hills, or the Hills of Scary. And you hear these uh, these frogs? Uh, these frogs inhabit the marshes around another village here in in uh, in this part of the Shire, which is called Frog Morton. Hence the frogs, or perhaps the frogs explain the name of Frog Morton. Now, more to the west, you've got a very big. Town, the chief town of the Shire, which is called uh, Mickledelving. And uh, we might visit Mickledelving later on. This is the entrance to Frogmorton. Uh, but again, I don't have time to give you a tour. We, we might do a, a, a more extensive tour of the Shire and talk about the history of the Shire because there have been some pretty major events taking place here in the Shire. At least major for for hobbits, uh, but I don't think we have time. We we want to speak with Corey Olson, 
today mainly. That's our, our main uh, goal. So we are approaching the three farthing point and uh, to mark this junction between these different areas is uh, what looks like a monument. It's called the three farthing stone and it's basically this big, it looks a bit like a, a very old obelisk type of thing. It's just a piece of vertical piece of rock and uh, there's a hobbit, an inhabitant of the village here of uh, Bywater is just sitting here on a on a bench, relaxing. And uh, so this is the place where uh, West Farthing and North Farthing and South Farthing come together. Or is it East Farthing and North Farthing and West Farthing? I don't know. Just three areas <laughs> come together here. And uh, right there in the distance below, uh, closer to the uh, to the river, is the place where I am supposed to meet my friends, which is the Green Dragon Inn. And the inn seems to be the most central place here. Let me get off my horse and make sure that my horse is safe. Uh, there's a musician playing a flute here and some hobbits enjoying the sunshine. On my left is uh, uh, the sign of the Green Dragon Inn and, well, what do you know, it's a purple sign with a big green dragon, a winged dragon on it. And so, let's see if our friends are here in the Green Dragon. So, some hobbits uh, vestments here on my left in this little hallway and uh, the, the green dragon is actually a pretty big room here or the big tavern um, <laughs> some hobbits are definitely enjoying the beer and on my left and on my right here right before I enter the main area <laughs> these hobbits are drunk two big uh, paintings of, of a green dragon and here is Barmy Rootnot, who is the keeper of this tavern. Yeah. Can I take a moment of your time? Well, actually, I want to ask you if you've seen my friends, uh, Inge, Dave, and Laura. Oh, he's pointing me to his left, which is my right. And there's a, a nice fire burning here. And, uh, well, there are my friends. So we are meeting today um, someone that, that I'm excited to have uh, on on the show on uh, Secrets of Middle Earth, Professor Corey Olson, and he is known throughout the world, you can say, as the Tolkien Professor. Um, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. We're so glad to uh, to get to know you and to get to talk to you. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about what you do and why you are so involved in the world of Tolkien? Sure, sure. Well, <clears throat> basically, I'm a, I'm just an English professor, uh, and I just kind of recently decided about a year and a half ago that um, I don't know. I, I've been sort of increasingly frustrated with the fact that you know we, that is we academics, are encouraged to do all this work and to do, you know, all this writing and thinking. And then in the end, uh, the publishing that we're encouraged to do really reaches almost nobody. Uh, you know, nobody really reads scholarly books and almost nobody can get scholarly journals. And 
I was basically convinced that there were a lot of people who would be interested in getting involved in a conversation about the stuff that I was doing, which was, you know, I was writing on Tolkien. Um, if there are a lot more people out there who would be interested to talk about it than, than I could really reach through traditional channels. So I said, hey, you know what's, I'm going to do my, uh, you know, put out some of my stuff through a podcast instead. And that was about a year and a half ago. And uh, things have really kind of taken off. It has been uh, a lot of fun to get to interact with people and we've been doing sort of more and different stuff we're doing an online seminar now and you know some sort of chats and conversations in addition to you know my lectures and stuff like that so it's just basically been my my desire to uh, to really just involve more people in this kind of discussion I really don't think that discussion of literature need to be something that professors just do with each other essentially so uh, and as far as the world of Tolkien I mean Tolkien has been uh, really, you know, a big part of my life for almost all of my life. I'm a medievalist uh, uh, by by training, and it's primarily what I teach uh, at Washington College here in Maryland. Um, and that is, I, I am a medievalist primarily because of Tolkien, um, and you know, through his the introduction that he gives to people, whether they realize it or not, through his books. Um, and uh, so, you know, that's that's uh, basically sort of the, the the main work that I do, trying to sort of share my own my own enthusiasm for for Tolkien's books with people, especially in the aftermath of the films, when a lot of people have come to sort of see and and come to love Tolkien's world, uh, even if they don't really know the books that well. So, getting people to sort of go back and read the books and sort of reading them with them and talking about them is really fun. So. And that is why we're so glad to have you in today's episode because, uh, well, we've been wandering around in Middle-earth for quite a while now, discovering <laughs> all sorts of stories and backgrounds, and, and the world is so rich and there's so much to discover, and you can go back to these stories time and again and discover more and more. And so we would like to ask you a couple of questions, if you, if you would allow us, uh, because with your sure. knowledge, we hope that you can enrich our experience of Middle-earth as well. We are here today in the Shire, and this is where the story got started with, uh, well, the first encounter, of course, was uh, this little hobbit that lived in a hole in the ground, and his name was Bilbo. Right. And can, can you give us, like, some background as to how this whole idea of the Shire, how, how did this come about? How did, how did the story start? Well, the story started with The Hobbit, of course. Tolkien published The Hobbit in 1937, and this was way before uh, The Lord of the Rings was originally conceived of as a sequel and everything. Um, and uh, so, you know, The Shire was actually, and if you read The Hobbit, The Shire itself is pretty underdeveloped in The Hobbit. You've got Bilbo's home, and he describes, you know, Bag End in detail, and there are some things that are said about about the surrounding area, but not really very much. It's, uh, you know, but the, the in, with, within The Hobbit, the Shire is kind of generally conceived as sort of a safe, secure, comfortable, and uh, I guess you could say normal place. That is, it's, it's not magical, it's not scary. Um, and, you know, what Tolkien does an amazing job of in, in The Hobbit originally was to, to really bring his readers, because of course he was intending it for, 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 for kids, to really bring kids into this world of, 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 of magic and fairy uh, and fantasy pretty gradually and pretty gently. And so he starts off on what's kind of home base. And throughout, even as it becomes developed later on in The Lord of the Rings, the Shire is always home base. I mean, that's sort of the central thing that the Shire is. Um, and in The Lord of the Rings, even the characters themselves really think about that more. As Frodo 
is discovering in chapter two of the Fellowship of the Ring that the ring that he inherited from Bilbo is actually, you know, this great ring of power and that the Dark Lord is going to be hunting for him personally. And I mean, so his his whole world has been has been shaken by this and he's made the decision that he's going to leave the Shire and, 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 and travel away chiefly so that he can preserve it so he can prevent the Dark Lord from coming and hunting him there in the Shire and, and, uh, and harming other people. Um, you know, Frodo reflects on the fact that the Shire, you know, as you know, he says, as long as the, I know that the Shire is behind me, safe and comfortable, then, then, then he knows that he can be happy, uh, even if he himself is homeless. He says, I, I, I will know that somewhere there is a secure foothold, um, and that's that's the role of the Shire, um, you know, and it's it is not just kind of the normal world when we get to the Fellowship of the Ring, but it is this world of of peace and community. Um, it is a little world, not just because there happen to be little people in it, uh, namely hobbits, but the concerns of the of the Shire are little. Um, so it is always in contrast to the big, scary, magical world, um, and uh, that's 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 why the Shire is really important uh, in all of the books. Very good, and uh, I, I think that I've read that that the Shire also reflected a bit the. The world that Tolkien himself lived in. Uh, it's kind of the, it's England, or at least the England that he knew. And, uh, and and even the hobbits themselves and their attitudes kind of reflect a little bit the world that, that he loved. Uh, is that correct? Yes, it is. Um, it, in, to some extent, well, I don't want to quite go so far as to say that that's accidental. Um, that is, I don't, uh, well... What I would like to say about that is that Tolkien, I don't think, set out to say, I want to, cre- I want to show the ideal society, and the ideal society is England. In fact, specifically, the ideal society is late Victorian, you know, rural England. Um, I, I, I don't think he was sort of conceptualizing it that way. What he did do is say, I want to create this, you know, I, I, I want to depict this beautiful, peaceful, quiet charming happy place and he wanted it to be like home and he wanted it to be like home to his readers um and so his readers in 1937 uh you know could you know could still relate to this it's uh, you know bilbo is supposed to be the character that you relate to and that you can connect with and so naturally um telling the story first to his own kids you know and then to to millions of children through the hobbit you know he he made the hobbits Bilbo's culture specifically and the Hobbit's culture in general, therefore something that they could relate to, something that something that he knew. Um, so, so yes, it is very much like the English countryside that he grew up in um, and that he had kind of idealized to some extent. But that's not to say that the, that the Shire is either depicted as or even really intended as an ideal society. There are problems with the Shire, and that, again, is something that he thinks about a little bit more and that the characters think about a little bit more in The Lord of the Rings, um, that it's a kind of a little too sheltered and it's a little too quiet, um, and that this has some actually some negative impact on the people who live there, that they're insufficiently aware of the big world and they take things for granted and stuff like that. But, um, but yes, it is, it is a very English place, uh, and uh, it reflects several of, uh, of Tolkien's own uh kind of preferences and concepts of the ideal world um yeah you know there's a lot of uh a, a lot of uh 
not a lot of machinery. There's not there's no industrialization. There's uh, you know there's a lot of pipe smoking. Uh, you know, then that's 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 Tolkien's ideal world. Well, the interesting thing of the story wise is that we we begin our discovery of the world of and the history of Middle Earth in the Shire and in this relatively protected peaceful world. But bit by bit we discover that there's a whole you know history that precedes it. There's a world that surrounds the Shire where there is much more conflict and much more drama. And if we go back to the Cimmerillion and those stories, um, is there kind of a backstory to the Hobbits as well? Is there are do the Hobbits play a role in that, let's say, more ancient history of Middle Earth? They don't play any role in the very ancient history of Middle Earth, at least none that's recorded. Um, and this is one thing to that's that's sort of important to keep in mind when reading um, when reading Tolkien and when trying sort of thinking about the big picture and making connections like this. Tolkien was fairly consistent in conceiving the framework of his writings as writings. That is, within the stories, there are always included accounts of how that story that you're reading got written. So you know, The Hobbit originally was Bilbo's private journal. So this is going to be sort of Bilbo's first person account. It's not told in the first person, but it's, it's going to be his own account of, uh, of, of what happened on his big trip. And then within the Lord of the Rings, you'll remember at the end, we get uh, Frodo writing up the Lord of the Rings. And, you know, in the last chapter, he's, you know, handing the book with the title, well, with the many titles, uh, to Sam and asking Sam to finish it up. The Silmarillion, by contrast, is ancient lore that is compiled and written by the elves. Now, of course, theoretically, actually, it was written by the elves and then translated by Bilbo. We see um, that book, that uh, that book of lore, which was of, of elvish lore, translated in, into common by Bilbo, given to Frodo at the end of the Lord of the Rings, too. And that's the Silmarillion material. But the Silmarillion stuff is all told from the elvish perspective. So they're scarcely even aware of humans and seem to be totally unaware <laughs> of hobbits. And, all, and the hobbits seem to live much they they lived uh, much further east in middle earth than the events of the stories in the silmarillion anyway um so they don't come into the silmarillion at all and uh there's very little that's sort of known about them um when talking about their backstory as tolkien over the course of the uh, of his life especially sort of the latter half of his life after he'd written the lord of the rings he spent a lot of time going through and integrating the texts that he'd written and uh you know making the hobbit fit with the lord of the rings better mm -hmm. fitting both of them into the context of the silmarillion stories which he wrote long before actually he'd written any of them he first wrote the first draft of the stories of the silmarillion stuff 20 years before he wrote the hobbit um so, you know, he, he spent a lot of time trying to make it all fit together, but he didn't just kind of go back and tell the history, you know, the ancient history of the hobbits from a sort of external perspective. He recreated the records of the hobbits as they would have been able to recreate it, which right, is pretty sketchy. Right. Uh, so we, so we, don't get, we, we don't get a whole lot of details. We know some of where they came from. They came from the north of Middle-earth, uh, mm -hmm. near, the, near the same region where uh, the, the ancestors of the Rohirrim came down. Um, so that's why you know Tolkien is very interested in similarities between Hobbit language and 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 the the language of the Rohirrim, but uh, but we don't know much about their very ancient history, and they don't come into the Silmarillion at all. Well, and they don't seem to have uh, like a literary tradition or or big libraries or that sort of stuff. Yeah, and that you know that too it was sort of another reflection of kind of the smallness of Hobbit interests. Uh, you know, in the Lord of the Rings, we're told that Hobbits are very interested in hist in 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 history, but they don't use that word. When in Bree, Frodo says to the other Hobbits that he's talking to in Bree that he is interested in history.
history and geography, they all nod very wisely, but the narrator tells us that those words aren't really much used in the Bree dialect. People don't talk about history and geography. Fam uh, family history, hobbits love. They have a passion for family history. But what they like <laughs> is the genealogies of their immediate ancestors, and they'll go over and over and over their genealogies. But yeah, as far as like the chronicle history of Middle-earth, they, they don't really have much interest in that. <laughs> I have a, a question about hobbits. Um, why is it that uh, Tolkien uses hobbits as the central figures to tell his story and to be the heroes in his story? Well, I think it's one of the really neat ways. I mean, you can see kind of glimpses of it in The Hobbit, and then you can see how the idea gets more fully developed in The Lord of the Rings. In The Hobbit, as I said, you get Bilbo as sort of the anchor for the reader. He's the the real world world person. I mean, if if you as a reader of The Hobbit are not really used to reading fantasy and you're not really comfortable with this whole, like, you know, there are elves and dragons and things, well, Bilbo is your friend because he's not comfortable with it either. You know, so you've got a story whose protagonist is you know, sort of a mundane real-world protagonist who is really struggling with all of this adventure fantasy stuff all the way through. So, mm -hmm. you know, so, so he's that connection for the reader. In The Lord of the Rings, this idea gets developed a little bit further as you have these huge epic characters and this huge epic plot. Um, again, the hobbits provide us with, with a different kind of anchor, uh, in a sense. They are they are the, the you know the eyes through which we see things that world and the story is is really big you know you the, the story of the war of the ring is this you know this clash of titanic figures um you know that sour on the dark lord and then many of the characters in the story are really grand and powerful and huge aragorn and gandalf and galadriel and elrond these are all you know major figures whose powers and perspective is uh is very different from what normal people can relate to. So, but we can relate to the hobbits. And the hobbits see everything, you know, so from a certain uh, a certain way of looking at it, or a certain way of saying it, the whole Lord of the Rings is told from the perspective of about three feet off the ground. You know, <laughs> yeah, and that's so true. We're, we're always looking up at people. Yeah. And that's, that's, you know, so, but however, we still have the hobbits that we can kind of yep. look at in the eyes, and uh, and therefore it gives us kind of a place to rest and a place that that we can be comfortable, and from which we can sort of work out our own um, our own uh, uh, way of understanding things. This is why I think the archetypal characters in Tolkien. I mean, you've got characters like Aragorn um, uh, or Faramir who are just you know, seem almost impossibly grand and and not quite perfect, but certainly when you read them, you can't relate to them as people often want to relate to characters in novels. Um, you're not supposed to. You're supposed to look up at them. But they're not, you know, it, but sometimes a book which just has like, you know, that kind of epic, heroic, archetypal characters might seem kind of boring because it doesn't really give you a place to, to, to kind of rest and to, and to kind of enter in yourself into the story. Um, but The Hobbits, it gives you a way in and then you could just look up with them at these great characters uh, and, have a, and, and have a way to understand it. So that I think yeah. is one of, the, one of the big impacts. It's interesting in, the, uh, in his introduction, uh, to the first volume of the History of Middle-earth series. Christopher Tolkien, um, uh, uh, Tolkien's son, was commenting on the Silmarillion and why people have such a hard time with it. Because, um, of course, Christopher edited and published the Silmarillion three year, or four years after Tolkien's death. And, uh, and he said that, you know, he thinks that one of the problems, which he admits 
was a mistake, he thinks in retrospect, um, was that there's no frame. He says, you know, the problem is no hobbits. No <laughs> hobbits, yeah. The whole thing is high. Yeah. Uh, and there's no, you know, we don't have a place that we can, where we can kind of be secure and, and be looking up and looking into these things. Um, and that he, he wishes in retrospect, he said, that, uh, and this was in the early 80s that this was published, um, that in, in, in retrospect, he wishes that he had, uh, he had, you know, put in a Hobbit frame, or you know, sort of gone ahead because Tolkien had sort of sketched out some things of like you know a discussion, either like Sam reading the stories to uh, you know to to other Hobbits, or you know Bilbo and Frodo talking, or something uh, to sort of show this is the ancient lore that is handed down and it's being transmitted and translated by the Hobbits, and that might have actually made it kind mm -hmm. of easier for people to get into, but. That's yeah. true. the The characters in the Silmarillion, I, I hadn't really thought about that till now. But they 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 are all of that sort of larger than life type. Um, yes, you can maybe get a little bit of a foothold and a little bit of a, a relationship with with some of the maybe the human characters in the later stories. But even they, I mean, they're all still doing just these over the top heroic things or experiencing over the top um, griefs and sufferings. Then uh, it's much more, and even the tone of it's much more sort of epic and mythic as opposed to conversational, like a lot of the Hobbit stuff is. I think. Yes. Yes. No. I mean, it is. It's. I. I. I keep wanting to to, to talk about rest. Like, there's nowhere to rest. I mean, it is always, uh, you are always on the heights. And again, here, I, I come back to language which the hobbits explicitly use in the Lord of the Rings. After the Battle of Pelennor Field, so, I mean, it's one of the, the greatest epic climaxes in all of the Lord of the Rings. At the end mm -hmm. of the battle, Pippin and Merry are sitting together in the Houses of the Healing. You know, uh, you know Merry is, is, is in bed and Aragorn has just healed him. And... At this moment where Mary and Pippin sit down and Pippin says, Phew, we took some brandy bucks. We can't live for long on the heights. You know, and, <laughs> and, and, and I feel like the readers feel the same way. I mean, in, in some ways, if you read long stretches of the Silmarillion at once, it's kind of exhausting. You know, I mean, it's... Mm -hmm. um, it's very demanding. I mean, it's it's powerful and it's moving, but um, but it's... it's not beach reading. You know, I mean, it's, it's not... Yeah. it's not comfort food, you know? <laughs> It almost uh, feels a bit like, uh, well, some parts of Greek mythology where it's just all about superheroes and gods and you're, you're like, this is interesting, but I wouldn't be reading that every day. <laughs> it's, uh, right, no. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it, it's because they are all, very, I mean, some of them are, I mean, the Silmarillion certainly operates on levels um, which are very much like the levels on which... Uh, other mythologies operate, you know, like Greek, Greek mythology. I mean, when you're reading people, you're reading people who are operating on like, like, like Hercules would have, you know, like Zeus did. I mean, yeah. it's it's <laughs> it's very much like reading the Iliad or the Odyssey, um, much more like that than like reading, um, you know, just like a, a novel. And that I think is the mm -hmm. thing more than anything else, which tends to turn people off so easily when they read the Silmarillion for the first time if they don't realize what they're getting into. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's kind of a jarring change from uh, from the other books. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, just to get back to hobbits uh, for a second here, uh, I was just going to uh, comment on, you know, they're not heroic figures in the traditional term of heroic, but they are the heroes of the Lord of the Rings, and they have the strength that the other characters almost seem to to not have. You know, even when traveling through Mordor, Sam is still has hope. You know, whereas uh, the other characters uh, say that they wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to do um, that sort of thing. So, what's your what's your take on that? 
Well, that I think is one of the really cool things, you know, that it, it, it would be already pretty cool just for him to have, you know, the way that he uses the hobbits as sort of a way in for us and to help us appreciate and help us relate to, give us a way to relate to the heroes and the epic uh, characters. But he goes beyond that and actually does this really, this really neat reversal, uh, you know, where the, uh, and this is sort of, well, not foreshadowed, anticipated or foreseen by Elrond at the end of the Council of Elrond when he says, uh, you know, this is a task that can be undertaken by the weak as well as the strong. Um, and, you know, I think here we can see, uh, you know, to, to, uh, to, <laughs> to indulge in New Testament allusions, which I feel uh, an unusual freedom to indulge in today, uh, <laughs> you know, we can see part of the pattern of of Middle-earth and part, certainly part of the pattern of the Lord of the Rings um, is that God chooses the weak things uh, uh, instead of the strong and that, you know, the foolishness, the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of man. And, uh, and I mean, so many of the kinds of reversals, the last shall be first, uh, you know, that, that whole pattern um, of gospel thinking um, is very much a part of the fabric of, of Middle-earth and through the hobbits, um, is one of the primary ways that we see this because Laura, you're right. It's not that they're just, they always remain lesser. They're, they're always smaller, but they're not always lesser. Um, and that's one of the really, uh, one of the really touching climaxes of the Lord of the Rings is the field of Cormallon, which is, you know, the, the place where they celebrate after Sauron has, has been defeated and, and, and the ring has gone into the fire and everybody's gathered together. It's sort of the first celebration of the, of, of victory and there you have this moment where much to Sam's surprise and kind of consternation the hobbits are being praised you know and the, the minstrels are coming out and singing uh, you know the song of Frodo of the Nine Fingers and the Ring of Doom praise them with great praise and all of that and and Sam doesn't really know what to do with himself that's not where he normally is but of course they do deserve it they have they are still small but they have also become great um, and you know great great things have been done through them um, and by them. So uh, that's, uh, and it's, Sam is, the, is a hero and not only on a relative scale, but they never really lose their smallness. Yeah, that's, um, that's an interesting point because uh, it really, it seems like not only um, do they grow and not only are they heroic and not only are they, um, they're, it, it's not simply that they, they, they become heroic because they do that. But in fact, in many ways, they had sort of the right set of traits, the right kind of heroism and humility to do this specific task. The, anyone stronger, let's say, than them, the Gandalfs or the Aragorns, probably would have been more likely to fail at this than the Hobbits did, um, just because of the unique set of challenges that, 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 that carrying the ring and trying to destroy it um, brought with it. And uh, yeah, in fact, they were yeah. probably the only ones that could have pulled this off. Yeah, exactly. Um, the The primary thing that you need in order to be able to resist the ring, the primary thing required is humility. Um, and hobbits are good at humility. <laughs> they're better at humility uh, than the great epic heroes who, even if they're very good, also know that they're great epic heroes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. Gandalf realizes way back in chapter two when Frodo offers to give him the ring, he recognizes I would be really tempted because he, he knows if I took the ring, 
I could use it. I could become great. I, you know, I could become greater. I, I could take that ring right now and overthrow Sauron, and I would be tempted to do that. Um, Frodo, it's not for a long time that Frodo gets tempted to do that, and Sam never does. Well, okay, he experiences a brief temptation, but it's, it's the briefest <laughs> one that anyone encounters, uh, and he passes it very resoundingly. Um, and it's chiefly his humility that helps him to resist that. So, yes, it is, um, it is very much... Um, the humility of the hobbits, you know, them being both humble in character uh, as well as literally close to the ground, that um, that really enables them to be able to to do what they do. So I agree, uh, you know, Dave, and I, I would I would just put that as sort of part of the general pattern um, of you know that I was pointing to that sort of that 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 overall pattern of the weak things, the humble things, the small things, uh, and that through them these these great things are done and that's just sort of part of the, the the overall resonance of the lord of the rings so yeah yeah right there's one part uh, what what's uh, yeah surprises me most when reading the books is that uh, the hobbit's silliness they are um yeah concerned with things in uh, very grave situations i wouldn't even think about for example their <laughs> preoccupation with food and if they had their second or fourth breakfast <laughs> and does that silliness uh, that seems them seems to pull them through very different uh, difficult situations? So what uh, I was wondering what your thoughts were about that. Yeah, and you know, in, in part, I think you can see this as a kind of reflection of um, of their. Like the humility that we've been discussing, um, I think you know when 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 we look at Hobbit's connection with food, it's a kind of thing that that can, in some ways, I think, be easily misunderstood. Um, that is, there are moments when it almost sort of seems like, you know, gosh, I, they, aren't the Hobbits kind of shallow and superficial and really tied up with like, you know, the concerns of the flesh? You know, <laughs> they're always they're always. I mean, they seem lazy and gluttonous and, and all of these other things. And there are several moments when we do get this kind of bizarre to many other people in the book hobbitly behavior, um, which they usually are amused by. But it's also, it's not like amusement at the hobbit's expense. It's like actually it's kind of edifying for them. Um, I, I think two moments that really jump out, um, are this is both both of them with Merry and Pippin. When Merry and Pippin are captured by the orcs in, uh, in The Lord of the Rings, um, there's that moment, first of all, when Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli are are tracking them and trying to figure out what happened to them, and they 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 find their tracks and realize that right practically in the middle of 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 the battle. I mean, like they're they're out just maybe a hundred yards away from where the battle is being fought at night in the dark, and they see that they sat down right there and had a snack <laughs> before they crawled away. <laughs> and uh, uh, and Aragorn kind of says, well, you know, in their defense, like they were they were they were hungry and they didn't feel like they were in the open because it was pitch dark and everything. But uh, but he does sort of point out that it it is it was in fact very Hobbit like that although they were captured totally unawares and without any of their gear and they they were they were completely taken by surprise. Yet of course, like because they're hobbits, they had had a bunch of food in their pockets. You know, they didn't have anything else with them, but they but they but they did have a snack because they they they, they never go anywhere without a snack in their pockets <laughs> and uh and you know and just and and they they kind of they kind of smile and laugh about how 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 typically hobbit like that is and the other is after uh, after the 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 battle of helm's deep when gandalf and everybody and 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 Theoden and the leaders of the rohirrim arrive at at, at orthanc to confront saruman and there's Merry and pippin sitting by the gate um feasting on the 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 you know the stuff that they found there in isengard um and that's another uh 
that's that's sort of another sort of typically Hobbit moment that they will, as Gandalf says, sit on the edge of ruin and you know make small talk and feast. Have um, lunch, you yeah. know, yeah, that's that's <laughs> you know, that again, that, that's that's very <laughs> Hobbit-like. But again, that's it seems to be as much about sort of the simplicity of their pleasures. They are not worried about you know. The, think of the many negative reactions they could be having. You know, the, the the ways they could be responding more badly. Merry and Pippin were really seriously mistreated by Saruman and his orcs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there are, some, there are some sort of moral temptations, which many others might perhaps have felt, which, to which Merry and Pippin seem utterly immune, immune. Like, for instance, the temptation to take revenge. You know, I mean, they, they are eager to help the Ents however they can. They would like to see Isengard overthrown, but at no point are they, you know, like wanting to sort of you know, dance on Saruman's grave. You know, at, at no right. point are they are they like wanting to take vengeance. It doesn't even seem to occur to them. They're like, oh well, you know, we're free, and like Saruman has been has been overthrown, and now we're going to have a snack. I mean, they their their pleasure, <laughs> their ability to kind of stop and 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 take pleasure in simple things, even in the middle of these big high events. I kind of to me that's a, a sort of I was about to say a symptom of their humility. That's not quite the right word, is it? Um, a, a phase, an aspect, a consequence um, of their whole of of, of the of the the humility of their entire outlook on the world. They they're not wrapped up in big things like that, and so therefore they seem to be really almost insulated. As the, the Shire as a whole is almost insulated from many of the many of the big things like murder, for instance, which Frodo says has never happened in the Shire. Petty larceny, that happens. Murder, that doesn't happen. You know, uh, stealing of silver spoons, you know, that's been known to occur. But, yeah. uh, but uh, 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 or rather swiping, not even stealing. We're not talking about burglary. We're talking about, we're talking about swiping. <laughs> They're not uh, breaking and entering. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's only if you're actually invited in, then maybe you might sneak off with something. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, and of course, yeah, yeah. And that uh, kind of brings us to uh, the scouring of the Shire, which is something we wanted to talk about. And that it's something that's not in the movies, but um, that's where you do see evil in the Shire and you do see murder in the Shire, you know, and it, it, it sort of tarnishes the image of the Shire as this perfect place. So, uh, and a lot of readers, you know, well, people who've only watched the movies probably aren't even aware of it and a lot of readers even when they do read it find it sort of anticlimactic and they are like well what the heck's the point of this chapter we had big battles and um you know mythic heroes doing great deeds and now we come back and we're gonna just clean up the shire of a few ruffians and a lot of people sort of kind of you know don't get it so um Perhaps you can help us understand it better. Yeah, I mean, I could definitely see that. It does seem, I mean, if you just look at it on one level and say, well, yeah, we have ended with this huge epic battle, and now we're going to come home, and we're going to end by having a very little battle with very few people, um, that that doesn't seem sort of very intuitive. But I think the important thing, there, there are two things that we can see here. One is the consequence of the interaction between the small world and the big world. That is, one of the things that's emphasized throughout the scouring of the Shire is the way in which those four hobbits who have gone out into the big world have been changed um, in, in, in good ways, in positive ways. They have, the, word, the, the phrase that's used to describe them is they have grown up. And 
and that's an important thing. As I mentioned before, the Shire is not conceived, um, certainly in the Lord of the Rings, as a perfect and ideal place. There are problems with it. Even its quietness and smallness has its downside. It's sheltered and ignorant in many ways, and they take stuff for granted. They don't even they don't even recognize uh, how. <clears throat> how good they have it. I go back to that conversation that I quoted before that Mary and Pippin have in the Houses of Healing. When Pippin says, we took some brandy bucks, can't live for long on the heights, Mary's response is, yes, but it's good that we know that they're there. Um, and, and, he, and he then expresses gratitude, you know, and not one... Uh, you know, not, not one gaffer could live what he calls, in, in what he calls peace if not for the sacrifices made by these other people. So that whole, ref their return to the Shire with this refreshed perspective um, and their return to the Shire sort of as, well, more mature, more grown up is a big deal. And what we see happening, um, the many of the bad things in the Shire are sort of a consequence of the Hobbit's own kind of sleepiness. I mean, the main drama of the Scouring in the Shire is not the four travelers come back and clean everything up themselves. They come back and they wake up the rest of the Shire. And the rest of the Shire wakes up and says, you know, Farmer Cotton's comment, oh, it was almost too easy, wasn't it? Um, as, soon as, as, soon as, they, uh, as soon as they awake to the realities of the bigger world around them, um, then they are able to, to, to take care of things. But, then, but another thing, you know, the, the descent of this danger and this, uh, this, 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 you know, sort of big stuff in the form of Saruman at the end, um, into the Shire is a big deal. I mean, I think of the discussion that they have when they come to Bag End and they find Bag End wrecked. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the place has been completely trashed and, uh, you know, and Frodo says, this is Mordor one of its works you know they they were kind of hoping that they would come home and they'd find everything quiet and just like it always was and they come home and find that it isn't so that in fact you can't have an ideal world in which evil never comes you know to which evil never comes you know that you have to you do have to know about that stuff and you have to be ready to deal with it and you have to learn about it and that final learning process I mean we, what we see is sort of the maturation of the Shire it doesn't get bigger it doesn't fundamentally change but it does um, it does mature very importantly, and therefore we see the and, and we see also the final step taken by uh, by Mary and Pippin and Sam especially uh, there at the end, and they take up their positions of leadership. You couldn't have the Shire living happily ever after if you didn't have the scouring of the Shire, and if you just go back and things are just the way that they always were in the Shire, that would be well, not even exactly anticlimax, mm -hmm. but that would. That it wouldn't it wouldn't fit. That's not an ending to the story. Um, the scouring of the Shire brings the ending home to the Shire, and I think therefore also very importantly home to the readers as well. As I said, the readers have been looking thing looking at things uh, from a Hobbit point of view all along, and so there at the end now finally we get um, you know perhaps you can't apply the Battle of Pelennor Field. To your own life, but you actually can apply the scouring of the Shire to yeah. your own life. Right, exactly. I'm I not think, saying, yeah. I, I was just going to say, I'm not saying that Tolkien's emphasis is like sort of that overtly moralistic necessarily, but, but uh, that's kind of one way to think about it. I think that's a very good point uh, that the in fact the it, it brings home the message that yes this this battle was epic and it took place in 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 this faraway world, but ultimately it's the same battle that we fight 
on a day-to-day basis also close to home and 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 also in the shy otherwise it would be a, a real a fairy tale and it would be completely almost irrelevant as a story if it if it hadn't had these these consequences for your own little world so in that yes, respect yes. i think it's a, it's an important chapter it's an important part i think of the of the overall story Yes, very much. I mean, Tolkien was very interested in the applicability of stories. I mean, he 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 talks about that. He's you know, stories are applicable. We can in fact learn from them, and especially from fairy stories. There there's this there's this sense in which um, I mean, he was very resistant to the idea that if you were writing a fantasy story or if you were reading a fantasy story, what you were doing is sort of escapist and irrelevant to what. To, to, to life, he said, you know, he, he maintained these stories have great relevance to life. And I, I think that the scouring of the Shire is one of the ways in which he really makes that relevance pretty compelling because he does bring that world, those worlds really together. That, those, that world, which is so much like our own world uh, and this epic world, which, which we might perhaps be more able to distance ourselves from if we're not thinking about it. Absolutely. Well, I think that um, you've given us a lot of insight in uh, especially the world of hobbits and the Shire and how that relates to the bigger picture. Um, in a way, I feel like one of those hobbits who've, who's just w- woken up and <laughs> I'm starting to see all the cross-references. So I might have to step outside of my little hobbit hole a little bit more <laughs> and, and explore. <laughs> <laughs> but I've been I've been riveted by uh, by your explanations and by your uh, the how how can people find uh, more of your of your of your work? Well, the uh, there are two places basically. I have a website on which I keep all of my audio stuff, uh, and that's just uh, uh, www.tolkienprofessor.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, but also the same audio material is also available on iTunes. Um, either uh, I have a, a podcast just called the Tolkien Professor, um, and also the same material is available through iTunes U uh, through our what, the. The site, my college's site, the Washington College site. Um, so either, either through iTunes or through uh, or through my my website, you can get all of my audio stuff. If you're sort of starting off, in some ways, the website might be a better place to start because I have the different kind of categories of stuff that I do filed away in different places, rather than they're kind of all jumbled together on the iTunes feed. But right. But anyway, either place. Any future plans for the world of Tolkien? Well, uh, I am working on a book right now. Basically, I'm I'm kind of taking I've on my podcast I've been doing a detailed lecture series on the Hobbit mm-hmm. and I am uh um basically writing a book based on that. I, I would really like to have um books which I think are which I would hope w- would be really accessible to people. I I I want to do basically or what I'm writing is a, is a, is a sort of a chapter by chapter discussion um, through the Hobbit first, and then the Lord of the Rings after that, um, just to really you know kind of go through and encourage people to 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 read it carefully and to think about uh, these themes as they go through. So that's uh, one of the main things I'm working on right now. Well, I am certainly looking forward to that book, and if you write the way you talk. I think this is going to be a huge success. Everybody, uh, not just in Middle Earth, but in the whole world, will, will probably want to read this book. <laughs> well, thank you very much. We had a great time. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us today in Middle Earth. And, well, hopefully sometime in the future we might bump into each other uh, once more, in um, either here in Middle Earth or in uh, the other world outside of Middle Earth. That would be great. Great. Thanks for having me. 
And thank you all for listening to yet another episode of The Secrets of Middle Earth. You can find previous and future episodes of this podcast on our website, and that is middleearth.sqpn.com. You can also go to our main website, sqpn.com, for other shows that you might enjoy. And of course, you can help us in our efforts to promote this show by telling your friends and family about it, uh, tweeting about it. And uh, of course, if you can, go over to iTunes and leave us a review or rate this show. All small ways in which you can help us out. Thank you for listening to this show and we will see you soon somewhere in Middle Earth. And let me end this show with some appropriate Hobbit wishes. May the hair on your toes grow ever longer. Good luck with that. <laughs> Bye. I regret to announce this is the end. I'm going now. I bid you all a very fond farewell. Bye. SQPN. Leading the way in Catholic new media.